everybody, and welcome to episode four of the Off the Bar podcast. My name is Jeremy McGrady, and I am joined alongside Ronan Cardell, as always. And our special guest today is none other than a man that has gone across the Premier League, came across the pond, played with Toronto FC, created his own website, has his podcast with Christian Jack. It's none other than Stephen Caldwell. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. It's a pleasure to be on. Yeah, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Thanks, Ronan. Appreciate it. Looking forward to the chat. Okay, so where do we start? Uh, you've had a pretty long. We've had a pretty long career, so we'll we'll start at Newcastle. And um, let's take us through when when you were coming up through Newcastle. They'd just gone through a, a period of great success, and then uh, and then it was a succession of managers. Was it? Was it King Kenny or Bobby Robson that gave you your first start? Um, it was Bobby Robson that gave me my first start. It's, it's quite unique because I, I signed for Newcastle under Kevin Keegan. So I was, uh, you know, 15, 16, and I had the choice of a few different clubs, Scotland and England. And um, and I, I, I love Newcastle. I, it was the first English club I visited, so I always had a special connection with Newcastle and everywhere I went, I went to Chelsea, I went to Manchester United, I went to Aston Villa, I went to so many different places and I just kept loving Newcastle and getting getting back to that. So eventually once the, the talks progressed, it came to the point where I was actually going to be signing a, what's first like a youth training scheme, a YTS contract and then obviously a pro contract from 17. Uh, you know, Newcastle was an obvious choice. So Kevin was the manager then. Um, I travelled out to Newcastle. I was very much part of the kind of the, the the youth teams and um, and the different age groups then. But but Kevin was the one who kind of enticed me, negotiated me to come. And the ironic thing was that one of the other teams in competition was Blackburn Rovers, where Kenny Douglas was the manager. And and I was I felt like I was going to sign for Blackburn mainly because of Kenny. And in the end, I, uh, I I thought, mm, I don't know if I can sign for one guy. You know, it just I loved him so much, and he was he was so great that, you know, I was making that decision because of Kenny, and I'm going, I don't know if this is the right thing to do. So, I um I went to Newcastle because I felt overall that was better. And lo and behold, by the time I got there, Kenny was the manager, which was was perfect because you know it felt like everything just aligned at that moment. Uh, I had the guy who who I looked up to, you know, a, a hero of mine, and he was in charge, and I knew that he had an onus on bringing you through, and he obviously liked me as a player, and he knew my family, and so I felt very comfortable going to Newcastle, some great people there, and uh, got my journey off and running, but, you know, like I said, uh, Bobby gave me my debut, so, I, you know, I had Kenny, and then I had Rude Hullet for a little while, where I tasted the first team for the first time, uh, and then I had Bobby, you know, who kind of really had me in there. Get, you know, I was getting older by this point as well. And then eventually my, my debut came and I played a few games under Bobby and he was the man that I, you know, I had most of my Newcastle career under. And so you were able to play 37 appearances for Newcastle. Talk to us about the atmosphere being at Newcastle. You mentioned how you got to play against Chelsea, against Man United being able to play at these other atmospheric places, but talk to us about Newcastle and the atmosphere there. Well, I, I love St. James's Park. I think there's nowhere quite like it. Um, people often ask me, you know, what was my favourite club? And 
and you know where would I like to play this kind of thing and I never really answer it because I, I, I honestly believe as we get to more of my clubs in a minute that all of them are really special and and have some great fan bases and have complete respect and and uh, pride that I, I represented them but if I had one more game to play it would be at St James's Park uh, and that's just because I think it was my first place. I've saw it in some of the best nights in its history. Uh, I saw it develop from thirty six thousand to fifty two thousand with a new stand and you know the light roof. And it's just such a magical place. It's uh, I was there when Aspria scored his hat trick against Barcelona, and I was unfortunately there when Cantona scored the only goal of the game in, in the devastating season where where we threw the league away. Um, and so I've been there on so many big nights and I've stood on that field and I've played on it. So it's it's such a magical place. The support's electric. They get behind their their hometown heroes. And I sort of consider myself a hometown guy, even though I was for Scotland. Coming through the youth there is a very special thing. They're really, they're really attached to the youth players and they, they really love guys that roll up their sleeves and give 100%. I was one of the guys. And... Uh, even although it was, you know, such a kind of short first team experience where it was only, I don't know, 40 games, 30, 40 games there. It just really felt fantastic playing in front of the guys. And it felt like that was, you know, my, uh, my my first goal was to make it to pro football. And that was obviously going to be with Newcastle, I hoped, and, and I, I lived a dream. So it was an amazing time. Yeah, you actually mentioned Rude Hoyt that I actually completely forgot he was at Newcastle. His time at Newcastle was quite controversial as well, wasn't he? He had a big falling out with Alan Shearer. Yeah, Shearer and Hullet never seen eye to eye. Uh, Rude Hullet was obviously a fantastic player, but you know he was a guy who was, who was quite stubborn as a manager. And, and so there was some relationship things there with a few you know, kind of more senior pros, Alan being one of them. Uh, Rob Lee had a very public falling out with Rob Lee, who was a superb player. Stuart Pearce. So, you know, you talk about some of the guys and the character that they had as professionals. And, and, and Rude, Rude was uh, was a guy who just couldn't find a way to work with them. So, yeah, it was, like I said, I was in and about the first team then. I was only 18 or 19, so I never played any games. I, I went to Wembley, eh, Wembley, Old Trafford, actually, for a semi-final against Tottenham Hotspur and... 99, uh, when I was in the squad, I didn't make it onto the, the bench, but um, I was part of that group. That's the first time I travelled with, with, with the guys, with the first team, and it was amazing. We went to Old Trafford, Shearer scored a couple, we went we qualified for the FA Cup final at Wembley, and, you know, it was it was an amazing weekend. So I got a taste of it, and I, I thank him for that. He obviously saw something in my game, but, um, you know, he wasn't a guy that gave me my real opportunity and he was a guy who sort of alienated some of the heroes that have wore the black and white in the last 25 years. And so then you basically move across the Tyne River and you get to go play over at the arch, <laughs> the arch rivals basically and go over to Sunderland. Talk to us about Sunderland. Uh, well, I'd been at Newcastle about seven or eight years by this point, if you include the whole kind of time that I was there for the youth team and I was trying to break through as a regular but you know it was very difficult we had some fantastic set of half some great players and uh, I was a guy who wanted to play more regularly and I, you know I was always in Bobby's manager's room saying you know can I play more games and he was great with me but unfortunately he only saw me as you know a kind of a kind of squad player and a guy who would uh, come in every now and again and I wanted to be more so 
I made a decision within myself the season before actually to leave, and there was a couple of moves that nearly happened, never quite happened. And then uh, the next season, I had to sign an extra year with Newcastle, and it was a tough year because I was not in the first team again. I was very much in the outskirts. And so I start asking around. My agent would make the calls and find out who was interested. And one of the clubs was Sunderland, Mick McCarthy. And so... Yeah, it seemed like an obvious choice to me to go and play at Sunderland. I loved playing in the Northeast. They were a big club. I knew there was going to be some ramifications in moving for the rivals. You know, it was going to be be tough to kind of manage it. But I felt like I was capable of doing that. And I felt like Sunderland was the, 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 the best club for me at that time to kind of get to where I wanted, which was which is, like I said, regular first team football and then obviously in the Premier League and so you know Sunderland was a huge club they were in the Championship pushing hard that, that season before I got there to make it to the Premier League and didn't quite make it through the playoffs so when I eventually got there I knew we had a good squad a couple of little pieces and we were going to be challenging and, and fortunately for us you know we won the Championship that year with a tremendous run from sort of the new year onwards yeah, what was it like playing under Mick McCarthy again? Being being Irish, I've got to ask you this. He he was just national team manager, but I, I've always heard very good things about him, apart from the Roy Keane incident. Yeah, he's Mick's absolutely brilliant. What you see is what you get with Mick. You know, he's uh, no nonsense. He's he doesn't not a big tactical guy. He's more a man manager. He's a guy that you know brings out the best in people. It's tough love at times. You know, you've got to be thick skinned and you've got to be strong to play under Mick because. You know, he won't sugarcoat anything. So it was a great learning experience for me coming from, you know, that, that Newcastle environment and not quite being a true hardened professional by that point to get Mick and to learn quickly on the job was 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 tough. And it was it was a great experience. It was something that I'm so glad I went through now. But uh, yeah, he was he was a tough guy. I mean, we, we would we would clash at times and we would have our moments, but we uh we had respect for each other and I love playing for Mick. He is a hard guy to play for if you're centre half because he is he's very tough on you but uh, but very rewarding because you know that when you get Mick's trust and when you um when he kinda tells you well played, you know you've done well that game. Again on the Irish thing, you were uh, playing beside Gary Breen at that time as well, weren't you? I was. Gary Breen and I was were, were partners. We uh, we formed a great partnership. I love playing with Breen. He was a he was a captain. He was a top professional. He's underrated player, Gary Breen. Actually, I thought he was very underrated. Yeah, unbelievable. Breen he could could pass the ball. He was quick. He read the play. He, you know, he had everything in his game. And I think that me coming in at that time, I think I complimented Breen. Uh, I think that you know I was a bit more kind of. Uh, what's the word, aggressive with my play and m- more kind of aerially dominating and stuff. And Breen was great in the air, but I mean, I was like the kind of old-fashioned type centre-half to Breen's bit of class and bit of play. But, you know, we could both we could both do a lot of aspects of the game. I think the biggest thing was that, again, we had great respect for each other. Breen was probably eight years older than me, maybe seven, eight years older than me at that time, I'd say. And, uh, and But we, we struck up a great partnership, great friendship, and, and I was someone that kind of kept Breen on his toes as well, as he did me, but any good partnership, you need that respect, so you could kind of, you know, have a little jab at each other every now and again, to make sure you get the best, and, and I think we had that that perfect balance, so yeah, I learned so much playing alongside Breen, and I, I loved every moment of it, but he was 
He was a top, top player. I mean, he played for some great clubs, but he probably should have done even better than, than what he did because of the talent that he had. He was he was exceptional. Yeah, he did very well for Ireland and scored yeah. a goal in the World Cup, of course. Yeah. So then basically continuing with Sunderland, you got to be a part of a team that promoted into the Premier League. Talk to us about being able to get that promotion. Yeah, brilliant experience. You know, we, we like I said, we started that season. We had the right pieces, but we had a lot of new players. So we had a nice mix of experience and guys that had been there. And then we, we, we mixed in some fantastic players. Got another Irish guy, Stephen Elliott, uh, striker from Man City, who was like myself, kind of in the reserves. Uh, sleeves, yeah, sleeves, what a boy, and he was ready to, you know, to, to burst onto the scene. Uh, there was me with a point to prove. There was Liam Lawrence who came from Mansfield, the lower leagues. Dean Whitehead came from Oxford, you know. So we had these kind of young guys coming in, uh, were mid mid twenties, early twenties, ready to prove a point and, and and show like the league or professional football what we're capable of. So yeah, I think that when you when you marry that with guys like Carl Robinson and Marcus Stewart, Gary Breen, Jeff Whitley, uh, Stephen Wright. Uh, Thomas Myra, like you know, it's some top pros there. When you when you think back, uh, a couple of youngsters, Chris Brown did really well that season. Um, probably missing guys out. I don't want to, you know, disrespect anybody in that team because it was a real squad effort. You know, we were a together group, but it took time to gel. So we we're kind of hit and miss till Christmas, and then once we kind of got to the other side of Christmas, we were we had our settled eleven, and we were like purring along. Julio Arker, George McCartney two best left-sided players in the league that season, just outstanding on that, that left flank. Um, and once we got in a run, I think we went 11 of 13 at the end. We won 11 of 13, I'm pretty sure. We drew one and lost one. Uh, and so we were we won it with ease in the end, but it was tight for a while. We had switch and Wigan. It was, it was some season. And uh, yeah, very satisfying. I learned a lot from that year, just the way that you... You know, you find a way to win, the way that you kind of scrape out some results. Whenever you get success, it's never always plain sailing. And and that's what we were, a gritty and together team. So it must have been interesting going from the highs of that promotion season, obviously, to the, the, the first year back in the Premier League being especially tough for you guys. How was that for a young player? It was tough. It was really tough. You know, we, we had big expectations. I, I think we... We maybe changed a little bit the team spirit by bringing in a lot of players. I think that we we lacked a touch of quality. Um, we had a difficult start. We we had bad luck. Like you know, we we never really lost many games too heavily. And I can't even remember getting like a four or a five, which is unusual for a team to get so little points. You know, it was always two ones and these kind of you know one nils. We were never really like we were always so near yet so far in like every game nearly, you know, so it was a, a particularly difficult and frustrating season. It's a hard place to play the Northeast when things are going tough. So, you know, there was a lot of frustration coming for the fans because they love the club so much. And so to to sit there on, on Thursdays and do press conferences and to, to talk after games and come out that stadium when there's a few people showing you the displeasure is is a tough thing to go through as a you know a guy who's kind of mid 20s 25 I think I was at that time but but I I, I learned from it I, t- I took the positives I you know I took the learning experience and um and and figured that you know 
kind of what would happen next time if I was in that position and how I could improve my game and uh, ultimately disappointing. But but like I said, any experience that you go through as a professional football player, you have to take the positives and the negatives from it and make yourself a stronger man and a you know a, a stronger football player. So then you move on from Sunderland and you go on to Burnley and you again help them get into a Premier League. Talk to you about your time being at Burnley. Yeah, I was leaving Sunderland. Uh, Roy Keane came in as a, the manager and, and it was tough. Uh, I was injured at the time and I played some games. Then I picked up a strain and then Roy and I, uh, you know, our relationship deteriorated very quickly. And, and this Roy is where was, I start getting interested. <laughs> and Roy, Roy wanted me to leave. Uh, and so that was that. You know, I, I didn't really want to leave Sunderland, I have to be honest. I don't, you know, I, I, it's not a kind of club that you kind of choose to leave. So I was I was quite happy if, if, if it went better for Roy and I, I think I would have stayed uh, and signed a new deal. But uh, like I said, it was... It was kind of weird because, you know, Roy and I never really had any immense conflict. You know, we were kind of fine and respected each other. Obviously, I respected him. He was an outstanding player and, and at times a terrific manager, but at times, uh, you know, very incoherent and, and very difficult to understand what he wanted. He was kind of up and down. He was young. He was learning, but he, he took some offence to some things that I did, you know, and I wanted a contract and... So I just kind of deteriorated really quickly and I, I found myself on the way to Burnley right at deadline day and uh, and on the move to a new club driving driving across the country to, to the northwest. And, you know, I was a bit kind of bemused at that time. I, I don't think I was entirely comfortable that I was making the move. It was, it felt like kind of rushed and I felt very unsure about about taking that step and, and, and really wondering on that, that first morning what I'd done, you know, like financially I was in a decent position, I signed a good contract, Burnley were super keen on bringing me there, Steve Cottrell was was a big reason for that, I had actually been at Sunderland a season or two before but I was, uh, like I said, I was, I didn't know what to expect and, you know like, as I'm going to tell you in a minute or two probably, it was, it was the best thing I ever did. Yeah, what was it like making that move? Again, you're going from somewhere like Sunderland who were going to push for promotion that season to Burnley, who I think were sitting down to the other end of the league, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so um, once Roy got got going, you know, we signed some great players, David Conley, another Irish guy, Graham Cavara, another Irish guy. Um, we, had, we had some good cash there to spend at Sunderland, and Johnny Evans came in on loan. I was injured. Johnny Evans and Nairon Noseworthy started a brilliant partnership, the, the centre of defence. Um, and and so you know I was on the road and Burnley were in the middle of seventeen game winless streak, <laughs> so you know I thought that was going to end right away, but I found myself in the middle of it as well, and it got to a point where it really looked like we might get relegated, and you know I can remember we went to Southend, we lost a goal in the last minute, and they were getting closer to us. They ultimately ended up being relegated and. I was, you know, we stayed at a hotel at Stansted before we flew back the next day, and I was, I couldn't, but I was thinking, oh my gosh, I'm heading towards League One. That's that was probably my lowest moment in football that night. I don't think I slept a wink, just thinking, you know, what, what have I done? Then we end up, you know, we, we made it. We was we, we found safety. We found a few wins when we needed it. Um, we played Sunderland that year at the Stadium of Light. They 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 beat us three two. It was a brilliant game. 
some great goals in that game for anybody that's never seen it. Go back and watch uh, Wade Elliott scored a cracker for us, but Carlos Edwards scored a winner that's, you know, one of the best goals in the history of the Stadium of Light, I would say. And, um, yeah, great, great to go back, but, you know, losing and watching them sort of celebrate and be on the verge of promotion was bittersweet. It was tough because uh, I was in a struggling championship team at that time. Uh, but I really believe that we were we were on a good track with Burnley. I, I honestly did. You know, my, my early misgivings were, were soon gone. And I thought even in the middle of that tough time that someone was kind of growing. Steve was a, was a clever manager and he was picking up some good players. And I did feel like it was the right place for me. I was captain by this point and uh, and someone was brewing that was ultimately going to later end up in another promotion. So you mentioned the fact that you ended up being named captain of Burnley. Talk to us about being able to be a captain and, and being able to be a leader on that type of squad. Yeah, it's, I think that a lot of leadership is intuitive it's, it's in you it's something that you're kind of uh yeah you cultivate it for sure but you know it's it's you're sort of born with it i believe um but i do think that it can it can improve and you can learn all the time and that's something that i certainly did you know i was a leader when i was captain when i was you know 15 for the first time with scotland schoolboys and lucky enough to captain youth teams and reserves and different teams all the way through, captain a bit of Sunderland as well when, you know, when Brini was injured then. Actually, I, I had the club captaincy the, the season after the Premier League when Brini left. Um, and so it was very natural to me and, and I was I was proud of being a captain. It was it was important to me. You know, it, was, it, was, it wasn't the be-all and end-all, but I, I really enjoyed it and I took on the responsibility with the right kind of mindset to, to do the best for my teammates and to try and be that guy that they could trust and they could they knew I had their back when it came to, you know, the kind of chats with the manager or the board or whatever we needed at that time. So, you know, I think Steve gave me a... a Steve Cotterell made me captain maybe in my second game. I think it was my first start for Burnley. And it's kind of awkward when you're in a changing room, you just get there, you're trying to learn new guys and... The manager says to you, you know, two two hours before the game, right? Stevie's captain today, and I was I was a bit taken aback, and I could see the lads thinking, okay, what's going on here, you know? And so, you sort of have that issue where you know they, they don't quite trust you. They wonder why you've been made it so quick. You don't want to be seen as a guy who just kind of always sides with the manager. So it takes some time to kind of um, develop that relationship their relationships with 20 odd guys all different personalities different nationalities and you know so I think the first time I really learnt it was at Burnley because of the circumstances and I think that I got really good at it at Burnley because of the the influences that I had in that dressing room you know guys that came along that all could have been captains in their own right like Graham Alexander Michael Duff Guys that wore armbands, that you know, many, many times in their career, they they were, you know, they, I was their captain. So you know, I, I would lean on them, and I'd learn from them, and I'd, I'd kind of cultivate and and um, and tweak the way that I was I was leading, and and ultimately I became really good at Burnley. And so it was something, like I said, that, that I always felt very privileged to to wear that armband to lead the team out. Uh, you played at Burnley with. Uh... I said, Claire Carlisle, wasn't it? Yeah. 
Uh, I just I, I watched him on a podcast there the other day, and I think he was struggling badly when he was with Burnley with uh, alcohol problems. Did you ever notice anything like that? Uh, yeah, I, I knew Clarkie had had some issues and stuff like that. I think that he's always been very open with with uh, his mental health issues and stuff. And um, you know, he's a guy that I love. He's, he's he was my partner for a few years, and I was another captain within the dressing room that was someone who had wore armbands all over. I wore it for Burnley when I wasn't playing and stuff. But a very good friend of mine and a guy who who has went through his hardship. He's went through tough times. There's a lot of football players that, that do it. And thankfully, more and more are talking about it, thanks to people like Clark Carlisle, who, who share their story. So, yeah, I, at times, uh, you know, obviously when you're in a changing room, you're there for your teammates, you're, you're a support. I was his captain, so, you know, there's some personal conversations that we had that will stay between us, but... You know, you're, you're, you're pushing it towards winning games and the pressure's so immense that that's your main focus. So at, at times people do feel like reluctant to kind of bring up their personal issues because they feel like it might take away from the team. And I, I think and I hope that as we move forward in, in, in life and in the game of football that that will become less and less. That, you know, while we love football and we... we we essentially believe it's a matter of life and death. It's not. It's ju- it's just a game, and and we're there for each other in different ways, and just you know for ninety minutes on a pitch. So, like I said, Clark he's a, a a tremendous guy. Um, he's on the right track now, and and he's doing a lot of great stuff, and uh, a very good friend of mine, and a guy who I love and admire, and 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 was pleased to be a partner alongside him. Yeah, he he comes across as a very intelligent and tells us a harrowing story very funnily actually as well. Uh, yeah. If anybody ever actually wants to check it out, he's got a, a two-parter on under the cosh. It's very very good. And so, basically, moving on from Burnley, you end up spending some time with Wigan Athletic. Talk to us about being there as well. Yeah, the, the end at Burnley it never quite went how I hoped. The, the great you know promotion to the Premier League and then. Premier League season was was great for the club for six months, you know, the first half until Owen Coyle left for Bolton, but it was very tough for me. I, I picked up some chronic uh, groin injuries and stomach muscle tears, and I was I was not in a great physical shape, so I had to watch a lot of that season for the sidelines, and it was it was tough. It was really tough, and I had to try and you know lead the guys as a club captain getting on the field and not take my frustrations into the changing room. So, yeah, I, I had some difficult moments. And then I was on the road, I was leaving. Brian Laws was in by this point and it was time for a fresh start. And um, I nearly went to Leeds. I almost went to Sheffield Wednesday and it gets to kind of late July and I never had a team and I was starting to get a bit concerned about, you know, what, what would end up happening. And Thankfully, my, my brother was at Wigan and there was an opportunity to go and train with Roberto Martinez and Wigan Athletic. And, um, you know, I went and it was almost like a trial. So it was the first trial I'd had since I was, well, I don't know what age, probably like 15, 16. So it kind of felt weird being on trial at 30 years old. Um, and I just rolled my sleeves up, did my best, you know, um, played some games for Wigan, had some great moments, shared some time with my brother, which is you know, really uh, a treasured thing for me. Like, it's, it's, it was a special year in terms of that. Got myself back on track in terms of fitness, trained every day, was available for selection every game. 
And uh, and like I said, I had some great moments, learned a lot from Roberto Martinez, almost changed the way that I thought about the game tactically. Uh, such a magnificent manager. Uh, we, we had some great moments, but, you know, didn't play enough. So, you know, found it things about myself that I could have been at Manchester United. I wouldn't have been happy if I wasn't playing. And so even though we survived in the Premier League that year and I'd played, I don't know, probably about... 10, 15 games in total. You know, I was a guy that wanted to play 40, 50 games a year. And I knew that. And and so, you know, I left with Roberto's blessing. He helped me get my move to Birmingham City. He, he was such a great influence. And, and it was it was a good year for Wigan. I, I went, I did a good job for them. And they set me up for the rest of my career. So I think we both got exactly what we wanted out of that. But it was never going to be more than, more than a year's relationship. Yeah, sorry, I've gone back to the Irish connection here, but we've got another one in your next manager. Uh, Chris, you, what was he like to play under? Again, again, what's it like as, as, as someone in your position when you go to someone like Chris Hewton, who's known for, for, for having his team set up not to concede goals? Oh, it's brilliant for a set and a half, isn't it? It's like the best feeling in the world because you know that you're, you're, you've got the support that you need. And... Um, in fairness, I played uh, my, my, my Sunderland Championship winning team was was very solid. My Burnley team was more, you know, Cavalier football. So we'd always concede goals in Newcastle. We'd always concede goals the way we played. So uh, probably the first time that I really had a guy who was you know set up to protect a defence and, and 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 defend as a team. And so it made it really easy to to kind of playing that defence because I had guys in front of me that were all working at a great partnership with Curtis Davies as well but it was all down to Chris it was all down to what that Chris did he was an absolutely terrific manager uh, a guy I love playing under maybe maybe my favourite manager I just thought he was a perfect blend of um, a very modest guy very down to earth great communicator uh, caring empathetic tough at times, scary guy when he would lose it in the changing room. I just thought he had the, the perfect balance of everything compared to, 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 to some of the other. I worked with Bobby Robson, Mick McCarthy, Roberto Martinez, Ryan Nelson, uh, Walter Smith. You know, I could go on and on. There's some amazing names there. But Chris just had like a little bit of everything. And because that one, that first season, second season wasn't so good at Birmingham, that first one was so good. I just, you know, really loved it, and uh, and the memories that I have for playing under Chris are really special. Yeah, I think he's criminally underrated myself. Yeah, like he got yeah. a hard time at Newcastle, and then what happened to him at Brighton? I thought was scandalous as well. He's a brilliant manager. He's a brilliant manager. He 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 does what he says. He's he's unapologetic in the way that he he, he gets results. I think it's very effective. I think in this modern game, and everyone wants this. You know, managers to sell themselves with the way that they, 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 they talk about the way that they play. And sometimes it's just talk, I have to say. Chris just tells it how it is and uh, and is, is, like I said, a very honest man. And I think he'll be back in the game and I think he'll do a brilliant job when he finds the right club, the right fit for him. 100%. Not every, not, not every team can play tic-a-tac-a. No. And so moving on from there, I want to talk about your international career. You got to appear in 12 games for your home side in the Scot Scottish national team. Talk to us about being able to represent your country. Oh, there's nothing better than representing Scotland. It's 
it's the pinnacle, you know, it's it's uh, it's something that you dream of since the moment you kind of start playing the game, start having real serious thoughts about a professional career. And, um, you know, my first cap came, I was with the 21s in Poland, a couple of injuries, got called up to the first team, thought it would just be a brilliant experience. Um, ended up being my first cap, coming on the field about 50th minute. Couldn't believe it. I don't know. I don't even know if I'd played for Newcastle at that point, guys. I think maybe I'd, I'd only played reserves. I don't know for sure. I can't quite remember. But it was a bold decision for Craig Brown to to bring me on in that game. And and again, I I really have to thank him for the career that I went on to have because it gave me such great belief. And then playing with my brother, uh, you know, the only brothers to play for Scotland for. 50, 60 years and then, you know, there's been nobody since is is phenomenal. You know, we, we were both within the squad. We had our moments individually and then eventually we got a few games together. Um, but I think I'm frust- a bit frustrated with my Scotland career because, you know, I was part of a lot of squads and I was kind of near the team and it never quite worked. It never quite married that my club form is at the right time is, is my international and... You know, to get 12 caps, I'm, I'm very proud, but I do think that I left some on the table there that I, I maybe deserved or should have got more caps than I did. So it's, it's kind of bittersweet, but like I said, you know, playing playing for Scotland with my brother, uh, phenomenal. The the last two caps for me were really special because I was out the picture. Craig Levine was the boss and I was at Wigan and he asked me to come back and, you know, I said to Craig, I don't, I don't know if it's if it's right for me and he said look I'll only be honest with you come back and if you're coming in you're playing and if you're not coming in I'll pick someone younger and I just I love that another terrific manager I didn't spend long enough with it was Craig Levine and so you know I played a couple of great games with some of the younger guys and I just felt really relaxed and I just wanted to savour it and enjoy it and in the last game Kenny Miller got substituted and um, you know, I was one of the most senior players there, so he kind of gave me the armband for the last 20 minutes. So a dream of mine was to captain Scotland, maybe not quite in the way that I, I'd hoped it would be, but to wear that armband just for a period of time was, was a big moment for me. Yeah, just for our listeners, in case they didn't know, your brother Gary uh, played 50-odd times for Scotland and had a great career up there, up north in uh, Celtic, which probably would have been one of your local clubs growing up in Stirling. Yeah, we love Celtic. We we did support Celtic. My uncles, my uncle Thomas, my uncle John, uh, my mother's side were big Celtic fans. And I used to go with my cousin Claire to the matches when I was could barely, you know, tiny five six was probably the first time we went to a game. So it was it was our team, you know, and that dilutes through the years, especially for me. I I don't, you know, I don't really support anybody now because I just I'm so impartial. I love the game so much. I just want the kind of best team to win. Uh, but but back then, big Celtic fan, and, and Gary had a great career. Obviously, he was with me at Wigan, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, played over a hundred times in the Premier League, won trophies for Celtic, qualified Celtic for the the last sixteen in the Champions League, um, fifty five caps for Scotland. Just brilliant player, and um, we're still extremely close. We still speak every single day. Of course, now then from Birmingham City we go to the one that was probably going to interest our reader or listeners the most uh, when you moved across the water to Toronto FC. Yeah, um, how did I talk about this one? It was it kind of came, you know, the second season Birmingham was tough and it was uh, it was frustrating. You know, I played, I wasn't in my best form and 
And we weren't a great team, which was so strange because we'd been excellent the season before. Lee Clark was a boss and Clarkey was a guy I knew for, for years and years through Newcastle and Sunderland, played against him when he was at Fulham. Great guy, but just never never worked for me as a manager. Just I wasn't having a great time. I don't think he was having a particularly great time at Birmingham. And then I was looking for a new challenge and the option of Toronto came along, you know, and it was... MLS was something I'd thought about before and I thought, well, maybe this is the time and, you know, the, the, the story I always tell is that Ryan Nelson was a, the, the manager, guy I respected, I'd played against, but didn't know Ryan particularly well. I uh, wanted me to come immediately, but I'd played 45 games for Birmingham and so I said I would come in July and he said he needed me immediately and so my agent said, jump on the phone, you'll like Ryan, tell him yourself and basically within 10 minutes came off the phone and I was getting on a plane in two days' time, he had convinced me that I needed to be there and I needed to be there quickly. So uh, I've got a lot to thank Ryan for because this is now my home. I'm very settled in Toronto. Um, it was the perfect move for me at the perfect time. And I probably it probably would have passed me by if I never made that call to Ryan. And I wasn't convinced by his vision and his story that, I should be there and I should be there immediately. And so, yeah, it was uh, on a plane over to Toronto. Within a week, I knew this was a place for me. I, I think I was on loan for seven or eight weeks and then signed a permanent deal. But it was uh, it was a perfect time uh, for, for my strengths as a as a player. Uh, they, they, Toronto needed me and they needed my influence. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm proud to say that I was kind of part of that success, the early success in, in building that that momentum that, that led to so many trophies for Toronto. Yeah, and so once you one again, once you come over here, you, you get to be the captain of Toronto FC, the sixth captain in the for the franchise. Talk to us about being able to be a captain of a Toronto franchise, which a lot of Canadian citizens would like to, you know, say that they get to wear the C for the Maple Leafs or be the leader on the Raptors or talk to us about being a leader on TFC. Uh, yeah, a great privilege. Um, some interesting stories. The captain at the time was a, a good friend of mine, Darno Day. He played with my brother at Celtic. Another well, Irish guy. Well, connection, ex-Celtic as well. Yeah, so Darno was a great guy. He was a captain. And, you know, I know, I, like I said, you know, I love being captain, guys, but it's not like I go in there and say, make me captain. It's just... It's something that happens, and if it doesn't happen, it doesn't change anything about me as a guy, me as a player. I'm still myself. I still do do the same kind of things. And and uh, and Darren was captain for a few months, and Darren got a great move to Ukrainian football. I think it was he got he got a very lucrative move. He had to take it, and he left. And and then I was made captain, and so um, it was a great privilege. I think it was kind of coming to me at some point uh, for my discussions with Ryan but now I was kind of in charge and I, I, I was a captain and, and I, Ryan and I had a phenomenal relationship you know we were we were extremely close we were maybe too close at times because you know you, you've still got to keep that little bit of uh, distance between the manager and yourself but but Ryan and I were, were kind of personally close and we were like you know I was starting to get that point I was getting near an age to, to the coaches and the managers than I was to the players. So uh, naturally, you kind of want to hang about with the guys than, than the other ones. So um, 
yeah, Ryan and I would 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 discuss the game often. We we would have a couple of arguments because you know we were probably too close. But I, I loved Ryan, and I thought he was. I thought he's first and foremost just a terrific guy, but a great coach and um, disappointing how it ended for him here in Toronto. But you know, the the two and a half, two seasons, two and a bit seasons that I played were just so special. We just getting to see different cities, getting to see the club rise and grow and pick up more wins season after season. And um, I was just a little bit unfortunate that I probably came a couple of years too late. I don't know how financially I could have came. Any earlier because you know the the the, the difference between a kind of high championship player's wage and a and a kind of MLS wage at that time, unless you were a DP. Uh, but I loved it and I enjoyed it and I enjoyed leading the team. There were some great characters that were there, and you know people come for Europe and they think oh, it's MLS. You know I'll just come in and start throwing my weight around and. Tell tell guys you know where I played and what I did and that nobody cares no nobody cares about that stuff nobody cares about a manager who's played at this stadium and did this everyone just cares about how you're going to act and and behave for that moment onwards so when I came to Toronto I sat back and I listened and I learned and I I, I talked to people that I you know I'd been here a while that I respected and I'm talking about Ashton Morgan and Daniel Henry all the way up to you know. Uh, player liaison officers and, you know, uh, front office staff. Because you need to learn everything about the, the intricacies of the league, the city, the team, what goes on before you can start really throwing your opinion around. And so I just took my time. I listened, I learned, I gained the guy's respect. And, and then I led and then I just made decisions for, for people and and moved us in the right direction. And, and I gave everyone a platform to go and do what they were good at. So... You know, that to me is the best leaders, people that have, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of an open mind to to listen and to to share in the kind of uh, the leading and the success that's going to come. And thankfully it worked here. Again, I, this is something that fascinates me. But again, coming from a, a background in England where like the the, the longest away journey was probably from Newcastle to London like how did you adapt to the amount of grueling travel that you had to do in the MLS um yeah you just have to be super professional and um and and sort of diligent with your your preparation you know so if you think about when you play in Houston for example which isn't a great travel but I'm I'm, I'm probably using the heat as an example here where you just have to you know you have to de- you have to hydrate sorry from like the Monday for the game on the Saturday night, you can't just kind of pick it up on the on the Thursday or the Friday. You know, it's it's, it's quite strategic, and there's some great sports scientists. And you know, I I, I believe that Toronto FC is the the best club in MLS. I just I I'd never seen a club like this, guys. You know, I, I was like, it's like playing for Manchester United or Chelsea or Man City in the the Premier League in terms of the infrastructure and the you know the the food the the support that you get was magnificent. And so, you know, it was just kind of taking every little bit of that, every step we could make as a club to make things better and easier, getting there earlier, paying for a whole extra night's hotel for everyone. Not every club in MLS does that, but we never we never took a shortcut in any corner. We did everything in the most professional way that was possible. And... and I credit TFC for that, and it's a massive part of why TFC is a success. The ownership group, 
continually writing checks, GMs and head coaches asking for conditions that, that they needed to succeed and not even ask, you know, asking the question back, just saying, yeah, what do you need? Here it comes. And so, yeah, it was t- it's tough. You're in a line, you know, you're not going to a private jet. You're, you're, you get to the hotel many hours later. A lot of guys in MLS, we didn't do it too much for Toronto, but they have to connect. So it's two flights and, you know, summer playing and different time zones. It's, it's challenging. But like I said, you need to be the best professional you can be and you need to make sure that you're fully prepared, otherwise injuries occur. And so in your second year with TFC, a gentleman by the name of Michael Bradley comes to the club. Talk to us about Michael Bradley and his excellence being now with TFC for now, six going on seven seasons. Yeah, uh, Michael, the chance, it came kind of late, the Michael move. You know, it was it was something that wasn't really talked about till till he was here. I think, you know, he was having some success in Italy and then all of a sudden he wanted to come back to MLS and a great coup for Toronto FC to bring him in. Uh, a guy who, you know, had had was having a, a successful career in Europe. Where we played against him in a friendly not too long before and I was very impressed with how talented he was. And so, you know, hindsight tells us he's been, he's been a terrific sign-in. He's... He's done everything, but you know Michael's a guy who's completely focused on on the job in hand, working hard to make sure that he can uh, he can be the best professional he can be. So he's a great example to any youngster about you know the sacrifices you have to make and the uh, the dedication you have to show to be to be a real top professional. So yeah, a guy who who was was a good teammate and uh, someone who who um, who's gave everything to the football club and who's lifted many trophies for that club. And so basically I'll ask, uh, so you basically end your career in 2015 and you make the transition into broadcasting and jump into the booth. What was that like? Where Did you have the interest in being, being a broadcaster? Uh, I would say I was interested. Uh, it was not something that I felt was going to be the next stage of my career. I, I probably thought, if you had asked me when I was 27, 28, I probably would have said, you know, a manager, a head coach. Um, but things changed in life, you know, chances come along. I, I did a bit of broadcasting when I was suspended and injured in the UK. I did Sky a few times and did a couple of shows and, you know, I, I enjoyed it. I felt like it was, you know, it was a great, great job. It was fun, but, you know, it was just once every year or a couple of years. And then, you know, when I came here, I did some Premier League shows when I was still a player. And luckily for me, it was TSN who showed an interest. But at that point, I would have kind of worked for anybody. Um, but then my big kind of break came when, when Jason DeVos left for the, the Canadian national team job that he does um, development, coaching and player development. So, you know, there was a there was a void and there was a gap there. There was a space that I could do more regular work. And the only way you can get really good at broadcasting is by doing it all the time, learning on the job and, and improving, hopefully. Um, so, yeah, that, that was my big break. I love it. I work with two great professionals in Christian Jack and, and Luke Wildman who have taught me so much, who, you know, I, I share a really good chemistry with. I think we both, well, we all respect each other's strengths and weaknesses and we, we complement each other really well. But I enjoy it. I, I just try and be me. I try and 
try and be honest. I try and say it how I see it. Um, you know, the thing about being on TV and being in broadcast is that some people love it and some people hate it, and it's quite a polarizing job. You know, it's um, it's it's tough at times, uh, and and you have good games and you have bad games like players. So sometimes you see things really clearly and you make the right decisions or calls as, as you're being asked your opinion. And other times, you you know, you get it a bit wrong. And, you know, you, for me, it's just about, again, accountability and honesty. You hold your hands up, you say, OK, you know, I called that a penalty, but when I look at it back, it's not a penalty. And I've always just been like that. Just be honest. You know, people respect that more. Than, than someone who tries to kind of moonwalk out of the situation. Just say it how it is. And uh, if you make a mistake, hold your hands up and, and just try and be have a bit of integrity, no matter who's playing, whether I play for TFC or whoever. You guys will know. You probably listen to me call games. If it's TFC against Montreal and Montreal are a better team, I'll tell everybody that Montreal are a better team. I don't care. I don't have any allegiances to any team. Um, and, and I just say it how it is and, and hopefully people respect me for that because at the end of the day then there's an integrity of what I'm saying rather than because I played for these guys or, or I represented this, this lot so yeah some people like it, some people hate it yeah, just when you're talking about co-presenters, I have to mention, I'm only stepping in tonight because one of the guys that was supposed to do it, this Victor, Victor Froman, unfortunately broke his back. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're, we're wishing you all the best, Victor. Yeah. But uh, I, I want to talk to you about uh, League One Ontario. We're, we're, we're big about that here at the moment, uh, especially with the birth of the Canadian Premier League and now that the Premier League has... Uh, are owning League One, so it's like the de facto third division. Have you been been impressed with it so far? You're involved with the uh, Oakville Blue Devils. Yeah, I'm involved with the Blue Devils. Um, I've, I've seen some games. Yeah, I am impressed with it. I think that, you know, we're one of the most successful teams now. We've got some good young players. I think that ultimately it will get younger and younger as the years go on. Uh, we're being a bit of a feeder system for the, the CPL. Uh, there's some great kids there. You know, we've got to come up with these safety nets for lads who drop out uh, maybe Division One college or are going to miss MLS drafts and for guys who are not, you know, have, have dropped or, or never made an, uh, an MLS academy, we need this other system that, that's going to make sure that they have a chance to, to bloom later in their careers because you see it so often, especially in England and, and places like that. You know, guys... They don't. No, nobody develops at the same time. There's not a, a golden age for people to become the players that the, the men that they're going to be. So yeah, I think League One's been brilliant for that. And I, like I said, I think it'll get younger and younger, and uh, and 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 develop more and more as, as CPL gets stronger. You must be a very busy man. So you've got that going. You've got your TSN going, and you're also assisting at the national team. You must be very. You're busier now than you ever were. Yeah, I'm busy. I like to keep busy. I, I think that, you know, I started a podcast myself, Footy Talks with Stephen Caldwell. I've, I've partnered with Footy Talks on a few different projects and uh, that keeps me busy, especially through through this time. Um, I have a company, Athlete Transition Company called Horizon Leader Group, uh, who are doing some great stuff for a startup, but we're starting to get things rolling along. We do some great stuff with, with athletes and all different uh, sports and, you know, athletes that are maybe coming out of college or athletes that have finished an 18, 20-year career. We're here to help to transition you into the next part of your life. Um, but, you know, you mentioned Canadian 
national team, and that was a a, a a real bonus and benefit for me to get that chance from John Herdman. You know, the call came in uh, not too long after the Gold Cup, where John and I had spoke frequently for the broadcasts and different things, and 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 John asked my uh, my appetite for coaching, and you know, I have my UFA license. I, I got that pretty much immediately when I finished playing. Um, and I, I was intrigued. I was very interested. And once he had set the seed in my mind, I couldn't stop thinking about it. So, you know, I went to the first camp in September against Cuba and I had no real preconceived ideas. I, I was, I'm still not an experienced coach, but I was by no means experienced then. Uh, but I think that I've got some good ideas in the game and I think that I see the game differently to a lot of people. Uh, so, so John credit to him. He wanted me involved. He wanted me to support in different areas. He, he felt like I might have the eye and the potential to to become, uh, you know, a great addition to the to the group. Mauro Biello's there, Simon Edey, Jason comes in a lot of times. So we've got we've got some great guys there. John's a, a brilliant coach and a great uh, a great teacher for a guy like me who's learning, you know, the coaching game. Uh, he's one of the most thorough coaches that I've ever worked with or under. Uh, he's a guy who is meticulous with his planning, his detail, his ideas are, are, to me, the right way to play the game of football. And now we have a talent pool of player that, to me, is just ready to burst onto this scene if it hasn't done already. And I'm talking about World Cups and, you know, challenging for Gold Cups and things like that. I really believe that this is going to be a golden generation of Canadian players. And it's just keeping on track sticking with the process the, the 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 culture that John's started so far believing in each other and staying humble we're, we're going to do some amazing things in the next few years I promise you and so sticking to the national team one of the players on that national team Alfonso Davies he's just getting back to it playing in the Bundesliga with his club and what do you think so far of Alfonso Davies so far back again with his team yeah, he's a brilliant player. He's a guy whose uh, his potential ceiling is as hard to even imagine. You know, we just see him improve so quickly. I, I think back to I called a game of his a few seasons ago for the Whitecaps, first game of the season, and he was he was excellent. But you know, there was gaps in his game. And when I got back there to Vancouver because of the schedule, it was maybe July, so you know, two or three months had passed. And I couldn't believe the steps he had took in two or three months. I couldn't believe how far he had took his game on. Um, so, you know, I think he's age 19. He's, he's at one of the biggest clubs in the world. He's establishing himself as the best left back at his club, which immediately puts him in the discussion, the best left back in the world. And he's also consistently one of the top three performers in the last three or four months for Bayern Munich as well. So, you know... What a potential, what a player for, to start with, what a potential. He needs to keep working. He's got areas of his game that can get even better still. If he's going to be playing that left-back role, he's, he's defending can get better. His pace is ridiculous. He's, his ability is up there, you know. But, but I just think that he's got even more, which is quite a scary thought when you think about what level he's at right now. So, yeah, I love working with him and... Um, and he's a lad to, who's, you know, got the world at his feet if he just stays focused and keeps working hard. Absolutely. And so my final question to you would be that 
when you're com when you're broadcasting and you call a couple of MLS cups, do you get those nerves being a broadcaster going, you know, TFC being in three or four MLS cups and playing against the Seattle Sounders? Do you get those nerves of this is the big cup final, this is where the most people are gonna watch, this is prime time in the United States, prime time TSN in the afternoon. Do you still get those nerves? Yeah, you do. And um it's the thing that I, I probably love most about broadcasting because it gives me something near what it's like to be in the tunnel and to go and play um, because it's the one thing that we really miss that that kind of stomach churning moment where you're you're nervous and you're, you're thinking how's the game going to go and then obviously the game starts normally you settle down it's a bit the same when you're broadcasting um, my first year was full season oh it wasn't even a full season it was 2016 I called a game in the July, my first ever game, and then I basically called the playoffs in the MLS Cup final. So the MLS Cup final in 2016 was maybe my fifth or sixth game ever calling a match. So, you know, I listened back to that. I watched a brilliant thing on YouTube, Sky Sports, if anyone wants to go and find it. It's Gary Neville's first Monday night football performance for Sky Sports in the UK. And, you know, he can't, he, he's cringing. He's like, why did I do that? Why did I say that? It gets a guy's name wrong. And, you know, and we think of Gary Neville. is so polished. He's brilliant at his job. But when you listen back to your early stuff, you, you realise how much better you're getting and how, how rusty you were or how inexperienced you were. So, yeah, the nerves are there. They get better with time as you, as you, you know, do it more and more. And, um, are you promising that? Because uh, this is our fourth one. <laughs> We're still a little bit rusty. I know the first one I had to listen to from behind the couch. <laughs> you don't get better, guys. No, you, you get better. And it's it's like new things. are For me, at the start with TSN, the hardest thing was asking questions and interviewing people because I'd always been interviewed. And so now I'm sitting across with Javinko and I've got to find an answer you know, a question, sorry, for Seba, he answers, and I'm never prepared to ask my next question because I'm so anxious about how this is going to go, and I'm, I'm too rigid in terms of, like, my style and what, what's happening, instead of just listening to the guy and trying to have a conversation. So uh, I've got better at that. I think I've got a long way to go. I've got better at calling games. I hope I've got a long way to go because I'm nowhere near where I want to be, and I probably never will be because I always think... In life, you can improve. If, if that is my mindset, you know, there, there's always areas to learn and grow and improve. And so, uh, yeah, like, I love it. Um, I've been listening to a lot of old games, which I don't normally do. I don't normally have time because it's just on the next one. But because of COVID and because of TSN showing some great old matches, TFC and different things, I've been listening to myself and going like, ah, oh, speaking too long here, you know, should have came in here, should have been more precise there. It's it's easy to analyse in the way back, but but once you listen back, and you go like, there, there's where I could be better. It hopefully makes you a, you know a better broadcaster in time. All right, well, thanks very much for joining us. We super appreciate it. It's been an absolute honour, and uh, we we love listening to your stuff. And uh, we just like to say that this episode was brought to you by uh, the British Arms Pub in in downtown Barry, which is delivery now. Uh, support local in this hard times. It's some of the best fish and chips. I'm sure you'd love some fish and chips right about now, being a Scotsman. The next time I'm in Barry, I'm going to try that place out. I'm going to go to the Arms and get a fish and chip supper. Yeah, we'll get a pint as well. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Been a pleasure. Right, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Bye bye. Yeah, See you thanks. soon.